Christchurch, New Malden, 16th of February 2020, 11 o'clock service. Stephen Kurt speaking in the series Romans and the Covenant, a Covenant Ministry. Well, we are getting near the end of our series on Romans. This is the penultimate episode, and uh, for 14 weeks, with a bit of a break for Christmas, we've been studying this letter, commonly regarded as Paul's greatest piece of writing, and we've been seeking to learn from it. Now, Romans, as has been said a number of times in this series, is basically Paul's retelling of the covenant story. A retelling of Israel's ancient story in the light of the coming of Jesus to be its fulfillment. In the light of the coming of Jesus to be Israel's Messiah. And the aim of this letter is that its readers, those 2,000 years ago and us now, are able to see our Christian story within the bigger story of God's covenant plan of salvation. And the idea as we learn to read our story and place it within this bigger story, that we then live our lives accordingly. And by the time we get to the start of the passage that we're looking at this morning, and we're basically looking at the second half of chapter 15, by the time we get to this stage, the the basic message of Romans has been delivered. The specific reason for Paul's retelling of the covenant story in this letter is to make the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians in Rome realise that they belong together. They belong together as one single family. They belong together as the one church, the one family of Abraham, which God has created in Jesus Christ. What God has joined together, let no one put asunder. When do we get used to hearing that? It's in the marriage service, isn't it? And Paul is saying a very similar thing here about the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. What God has joined together, let no one divide, let no one put asunder. He's telling the Jewish Christians that the whole purpose of the covenant that God made with Israel was ultimately to bring the Gentiles into his people through Jesus the Messiah. And he's telling the Gentile Christians that they must therefore love both Jewish Christians and Jewish not yet Christians because they owe their very inclusion in God's people to them. And the climax of this message is basically found in the first half of chapter 15, where Paul summons the Roman Christians to what he calls a spirit of unity in verse 5. And he says in verse 7, accept one another then just as Christ accepted you. Accept one another. And to drive all of this home, And to emphasise that God creating one single people is central to the gospel. It's not a sort of subset. It's not a sort of footnote. It's absolutely front and centre of what the gospel is all about. Paul finishes the main section of Romans with four biblical quotations. If you've got the Bible in front of you, you'll see them in verses 9 to 12, drawn from various parts of the Old Testament. And he does that to leave in no doubt that Jesus came as Israel's Messiah so that the covenant blessings that God promised to Israel both could and would flow on to the Gentiles. That's a pretty emphatic moment, verse 13, of Romans. So why doesn't the letter end at that point? 
Why doesn't it end at verse 13 of chapter 15? Once its central theological message is complete and has been delivered. It's quite a long letter already. Why does it go on? Well, it's for two reasons, I suggest. Firstly, because Paul has some practical information he wants to convey to the Roman Christians. And perhaps more importantly, Paul wants to model or embody the application of his message. And so near our study of Romans, it's our chance this morning to consider what we have to learn from Paul's own ministry in the light of the overall message of this letter. And there's a couple of things that I'm going to uh, seek to draw our attention to this morning. A couple of things that uh, really are made clear about Paul's ministry and therefore made clear to us as well. And the first of these is the call to a priestly ministry that glorifies Christ. Paul talks in the start of this passage about his call to a priestly ministry that glorifies Christ. This is in verses 14 to 15. Well, in those verses, Paul firstly wants to acknowledge that he's been pretty forthright to the Roman Christians. He has spoke his mind fairly strongly, and uh, he is aware of that. So first he praises them for being full of goodness, complete in knowledge, and competent to instruct one another, just in case they feel that he's been ticking them off rather strongly. He wants to make it clear that he actually has quite a lot of respect for them. And then he admits that he has spoken to them pretty boldly. But the reason for this, Paul says, is because, to quote him, of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles with the priestly duty, he says, of proclaiming the gospel of God. Why? So the Gentiles might become an offering, acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So why do we get here all this language of priesthood and offering. Surely now that Jesus had died, the need for priests and the need for sacrifice was over. Well, in terms of priests offering sacrifices for sin, that was true. The whole reason we have that letter to the Hebrews in the New Testament is to make that very point. Because of the sacrifice that Jesus offered for sin when he died, that sacrifice was once and for all. We don't need any more any priests offering a sacrifice for sin. But nonetheless, Paul uses this language here, doesn't he? So why does he do it? Well, to understand what Paul is driving at, we need to remember the calling that God gave to the people of Israel. It's found in Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. And this is what God says to the people of Israel at that very formative stage in them being chosen as God's people. This is what God says. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The calling of Israel was the priestly calling of representing God to the world. Living with such holiness, living with such distinctiveness that the nations around Israel saw the reality of God within the way that Israel lived and were then drawn to him. That was the priestly calling of Israel. That's why Israel was described as a kingdom of priests. They were meant to represent God 
to the world. People were meant to look at Israel and know what God was like and therefore be drawn to follow him. Now we know from knowing the Old Testament that Israel failed pretty dismally in that calling, didn't it? That's the big theme of Romans chapter 2 and the first half of Romans chapter 3 that we looked at earlier in this series. And Paul's most devastating statement about Israel is in chapter 2 verse 24 when he says, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. In other words, the way you've lived, the way you've failed in this calling has led to the precise opposite of what you were here to do. But it's the sacrifice of Jesus as Israel's Messiah that's also spoken about in Romans 3 that then enables that calling to be put back on track. It's the death of Jesus that enables God's Holy Spirit to come upon his people so that they can then fulfill that priestly calling. And that's why followers of Jesus are called in the New Testament a royal priesthood. That's what 1 Peter calls them. The calling of those whom God has rescued in Jesus Christ is, as Paul puts it here, not just for him, it applies to all followers of Jesus, is the priestly calling of proclaiming the gospel of God. At the start of Romans 12 that we looked at a few weeks ago, Paul talks about Christians offering their bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. But he now uses very similar language to speak about the Gentiles that are brought to faith through his ministry also being an offering, an offering acceptable to God, sanctified through the Holy Spirit. So the way that we live our lives, our own personal holiness, that is part of our offering, our sacrifice to God, but also those who are brought to faith through our ministry, through our service to God, they form part of our offering to God as well. And of course, those two things are linked because it's very often the holiness of Christians that most commonly reveals God to others. It's very often the way that we live when we live in a distinctive manner that most attracts other people to see the reality of God and then be drawn further towards him. Now, Paul, of course, had a particular ministry of oral proclamation as well, didn't he? Paul was a preacher. He was a missionary, and that is a vital part of his particular calling. But Paul's proclamation really only made the impact it did because of the way that he modelled his message in the way he lived. Paul mentions this in quite a number of his letters. He talks about the way he lived when he was amongst those people to whom he's writing. And that's because the way that Paul lived was crucial alongside his proclamation. It was the two of them working together that drew people towards Jesus. And the reason we've received the Holy Spirit is precisely for that same purpose. We've received God's Holy Spirit so that we can live holy lives, not just for its own sake, but primarily to, to fulfil that priestly calling of bringing others to God, bringing others to God as acceptable offerings, sanctified, as Paul says, by the Holy Spirit. And as he does this in his own ministry, Paul says this, I glorify Christ Jesus in my service to God. I glorify Christ Jesus in my service to God. In other words, witness 
is a vital part of our worship. And we're called to make it a central part of our worship as well. Now, the application of this to us this morning is probably both individual and to us as a people, to us as a church. In the first instance, I think we need to think and pray about those people known personally to us who God might be wanting us to present to him as an offering. Who are those particular people whom God has placed within your life and within your sphere of influence? Who are those people who you have quite a lot of contact with, who are not yet necessarily believers or might be in the earlier stages of that, for whom it might be that God is calling you to make them part of your offering to him? Now, it might be a spouse, might be your children. If you have them, it might be grandchildren. As I've said before, it's been really inspiring and in some ways very surprising to me to see the massive Christian witness that my parents have had upon their grandchildren, my own children and my nieces and nephews. It's really opened my eyes to the massive impact that grandparents can have. In some ways, some of the complications that are involved in the parent-child relationship aren't quite so present normally uh, in the grandparent-grandchild relationship. And it can be that for some of you, not all of you are grandparents, but plenty of you are, it may be that that is part of the way that you can see your influence being part of presenting them, hopefully, as an offering to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. For others, it might be friends. You might have particular friends or neighbours or colleagues. When we're seeking to apply this in an individual sense, and we'll get on to its application to us as a church in a moment, it's good to think and to pray about whom those people are that God is calling us to be a witness for to him. Now, it may be mainly by the way we live. It probably will be mainly by the way we live. Representing God to them by a really attractive holiness, which will, of course will include a love and a concern for them within it. But also perhaps the odd and timely bit of proclamation. When we do speak words uh, which perhaps uh, come at a timely moment, those words are likely to be heard and received if people already have seen a holiness and a love and a kindness which makes those words actually have the meaning that they potentially have. So that's perhaps an individual application of this to us. But what about as a church? What about as an 11 o'clock congregation? Who are those people who might well be an offering that we can present to God? An acceptable offering sanctified through his Holy Spirit. Well, I do wonder whether the equivalent of Paul's Gentiles for us might be those members of Grapevine who we see out in the lounge on the first Sunday of the month. Who are the largest group of Christians that those people encounter on a regular basis? It's us, isn't it? Almost certainly. It's the 11 o'clock congregation of Christchurch New Morden. 
out in the lounge after this service is finished and before Grapevine starts. Now, we've just started uh, at the start of this month a new monthly Grapevine service on the first Tuesday evening of the month. First, we have coffee and cake together for half an hour. Then we have a half-hour service. And 13 came to the inaugural Grapevine service, and they absolutely loved it. And that is perhaps where the major oral or spoken proclamation of the gospel will be received by them. But there's a crucial priestly role for this congregation here at 11 o'clock in representing God to them by the holiness that we show in our friendliness, kindness and welcome. And that activity out there in the lounge on the first Sunday of the month, that will be glorifying God every bit as much as our worship here within this building, perhaps even more so. And a lot of you are doing this uh, wonderfully and fantastically at the moment, and it does make a difference. Perhaps those members of Grapevine who gather here on the first Sunday of the month and are starting increasingly to come to other things as well, social events like Cinema Club, the Grapevine Service, Grapevine Extra, which is the home group for Grapevine members. Perhaps they are going to form part of the offering that God is calling Christchurch to present to him. See, like Israel, we've been chosen. We've been chosen for the awesome responsibility of being God's priests in the world. The difference is, the difference between us and Israel is like Paul, we've been equipped with the Holy Spirit to make this possible. So let's be praying that the Spirit will be evident within us as we glorify Christ in the various different aspects of the priestly ministry that God has called us to. That's one lesson that I suggest we can learn from Paul's example to us in this passage. But there's another as well which perhaps needs to be held in tension with it, something that really looks like quite a different emphasis which we've got to pay attention to as well. And this is really drawn from the second half of the passage that Pamela read to us earlier. And it's this. God's plan for how this calling works out may turn out to be very different from ours. God's plan for how this calling works out may be very different from ours. Verses 23 to 33 of this passage give us a fascinating insight into Paul's plans as he provides a summary for the Roman Christians of his agenda. Paul tells the Roman Christians, and it's fascinating for us 2,000 years later, to be able to see what his strategy is, what his game plan is, what Paul is intending to do over the next few months. We think the letter to the Romans is probably written in the late 50s, so maybe we're talking around about 57, 58, maybe 59 AD. What Paul says here is that it's always been his determination to preach the gospel in places where Christ isn't yet known. And so far, he says, that's the reason why he's been prevented from coming to Rome to visit them. See, the Roman church wasn't established by Paul. It was probably established by Peter, maybe as early as around 42 AD. And Paul, it seems, hadn't wanted to interfere with the Roman church. He'd wanted to concentrate on taking the gospel of Jesus Christ to places where Jesus wasn't known. But that work, Paul says, that missionary endeavour that we hear about in uh, Paul's three missionary journeys in the Acts of the Apostles, that missionary endeavour that at this point had been to the east, that was now done. 
the churches that Paul had planted in Asia and Greece were established. And so Paul's new plan that he outlines here in Romans 15 was to visit Rome on his way to heading west, to launching a fresh expansion of the gospel in Spain. Now, Antioch in Syria, that had been Paul's base for his missionary work in the eastern Mediterranean, and now it seems he wanted to use Rome as his base for his western Mediterranean mission, which would include Spain and maybe other places like North Africa as well. And this would further explain why Paul wrote this letter to the Romans. He wants them to be clear about his gospel. He wants them to be clear about his message because probably he's intending Rome to have a pretty crucial role as the basis for his Western mission. But before he comes to Rome and before he proceeds with this exciting mission to Spain, Paul says he needed to revisit Jerusalem. That's his first priority. And the reason Paul needed to visit Jerusalem was to deliver the collection that he'd gathered for the poverty-stricken Christians in that city. What Paul had done, particularly on his second and third missionary journeys, was to collect money from the new Christian congregations in places like Macedonia and Greece because the Christians in Jerusalem were starving. And Paul uh, collected this money and he wanted to deliver it. Now, we hear all about it in 1 and 2 Corinthians. And Paul saw this as a vital demonstration of the unity between Jew and Gentile that God had brought about in Jesus Christ. Paul makes it clear in Romans that this was a vital practical application of the message of the whole letter. Verse 27 says this, For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share in their material blessings. And what Paul seems to have hoped was that this really significant Gentile Christian gift would bring home to the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem that God had always intended the Jews and Gentiles to form one united people, belonging to both God and belonging to one another. It was a wonderful vision that Paul had, and it had a very practical agenda for seeing it advanced. But as we know from our other reading, from Acts 21, this was actually the one that Pamela read, Penny read the Romans one, it didn't turn out that way. In that reading from Acts, from Acts 21, we didn't hear anything at all about how the collection that Paul brought to Jerusalem was received. And what we do know is that Paul's effort to show that he loved and respected his fellow Jews, that badly backfired. A riot ensued, leading to Paul's arrest, and what follows from that is two and a half years of captivity. That mission by Paul to Spain and everything that he hoped would come from it, it almost certainly never happened. And that wonderful unity that Paul hoped would be established between the Jewish and the Gentile Christians, well, that appeared to be in ruins as well. In Romans 15, we see Paul's plans. In Acts 21, we see what actually happened. A number of years ago, my younger brother John gave me this book by Martin Luther King. And uh, it's a book of his sermons. My younger brother's actual words were, I think you're reading too much Martin Luther and not enough Martin Luther King. And the book is called Strength 
to love. And as I say, it contains Martin Luther King's sermons, some of his most famous ones. They're really fascinating, as well as one called Paul's Letter to the American Christians, where he imagines himself as Paul writing a letter to the American church. There's another one called How Christians Should View Communism. And there's another called Shattered Dreams. And this sermon called Shattered Dreams, Martin Luther King bases it around the verses in this chapter where Paul states his ambition to journey to Rome. And what Martin Luther King says in this sermon is that all of us face shattered dreams. And the right way to cope with those dreams that don't occur, it isn't anger, it isn't repression of our feelings, it isn't a fatalism that assumes that we've got no influence at all, it's the willingness to carry on working for good recognising that God will often use our hardships and our disappointments and our shattered dreams to still work out his purpose. This is what Martin Luther King wrote. How familiar is the experience of longing for Spain and settling for a Roman prison? And how less familiar the transforming of the broken remains of a disappointed expectation into opportunities to serve God's purpose. Yet powerfully living always involves such victories over one's soul and one's situation. We Negroes have longed, dreamed of freedom, but still we're confined to an oppressive prison of segregation and discrimination. Must we respond with bitterness and cynicism? Certainly not, for that will destroy and poison our personalities. Must we, by concluding that segregation is within the will of God, resign ourselves to oppression? Of course not, for that blasphemy attributes to God that which is of the devil. Our most fruitful course is to stand firm with courageous determination, to move forward non-violently amidst obstacles and setbacks, to accept disappointments and cling to hope. While still in the prison of segregation, we must ask, how may we turn this liability into an asset? By recognising the necessity of suffering in a righteous cause, we may possibly achieve our humanity's full nature. We need the vision to see in this generation's ordeals the opportunities to transfigure both ourselves and the American society. Our present suffering and our non-violent struggle to be free may well offer to Western civilization the kind of spiritual dynamic so desperate for survival. Some of us, of course, will die without having received the realization of freedom. But we must continue to sail on our charted course. We must accept finite disappointment, but we must never use, lose infinite hope. You see, although he never made it, we think, to Spain, Paul did make it to Rome. He didn't make it freely. He didn't make it in the way that he'd planned. He made it through being sent there as a prisoner to stand trial before the Emperor Nero. One of the big themes of the last quarter of the book of Acts, with Paul constantly on trial, is the way that the powers of evil constantly conspire to try and prevent him from reaching Rome. The governor Felix famously says to Paul in Acts 25, you have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you will go. But almost everything still tries to stop Paul actually getting to Rome. 
the corruption of Felix and his successor Festus, assassination attempts by Jews, a shipwreck, and finally, a poisonous snake. But the very last word of Acts shows that ultimately all of this failed. Because as I've said before from this pulpit, the very last word of Acts is the word unhindered. Unfortunately, in our English translations, it's not the final word, but it is in the original Greek version. Acts 28 verse 31 ends with Paul in Rome, the capital of the known world, proclaiming the kingdom of God and the Lord Jesus Christ openly and unhindered. It worked out very differently from the plan that we read about in Romans 15, but God was still in control. And God was still working through this man who committed himself to the priestly duty of glorifying Christ through what he said and what he did. And it's the same for us. We're called to think and pray about how God wants to use us. We are called, in other words, to make plans. But as Paul makes clear in this passage, it's always God's work. What Christ has accomplished through me, he says, rather than our work. And that means that very often it will turn out rather differently from the way that we've imagined. It will, as it did for Paul and for Martin Luther King, sometimes evolve the rather painful process of some shattered dreams. There are a number of things that I really hoped to see happen here at Christchurch when I became vicar 12 years ago that I'm not sure will happen now. But other things have, including some that have surprised me or come from very unexpected means. And what it all shows is that God both calls us to this determinedly priestly role of glorifying Christ, but he also remains sovereign over the process. He remains sovereign about how it will all work out. A former church warden of this church, Trevor Webster, used to say that we should work as though it all depends on us and pray as if it all depends on God. I don't think he invented that phrase, but certainly that was the first time I heard it, and there's a lot of wisdom there. So let's freshly commit ourselves this morning to this calling that he's given to his people of the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God. Let's think about the places where we can seek to apply that, both as individuals and as a congregation and as a church, while also acknowledging as well that God is completely sovereign over the mysterious way in which this will form part of his plans working out. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you call us to be part of your work, particularly the calling to be your representatives in the world. And we ask, Lord God, that those who whose lives encounter ours will be drawn further towards you through our service. We pray this both as individuals, within our families, within our friendship groups. We also pray this for us as a congregation. We pray that the opportunities that you've given us to be a witness to you would be fulfilled 
And we pray particularly for those members of Grapevine who come here on the first Sunday of the month, who come to the service and the home group and other activities. And we pray, Lord God, that they will be an offering acceptable to you, sanctified by your Holy Spirit. Use us, Lord God, for your service. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to be led now in our prayers.